1 Samuel chapter 12. Before I even get into the study for tonight, we talked about this, about the, you know, Saul among the prophets on Sunday. We talked about that gift of prophecy and how prophecy is a gift, but it is also a calling for every follower of Jesus that we be those who forth tell the gospel. That's part of what we're supposed to do. Part of what he has blessed us to be able to do. But it, you know, whenever you talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, whenever you talk about the, the gifts, what we call the anointing, and the anointing is both the Holy Spirit in presence, but it's also the power that he gives us in different gifts and abilities. These are not things we develop ourselves. These are things that are given to us, but it can also be frustrating because how many times in your life or how many of you even right now go, I, I believe that I, I have the presence of the Holy Spirit, but I have no idea about the power. What do you mean the gifts? I don't know what my gifts are. And of course, as Christians, we've developed spiritual gift inventories or we go talk to a pastor. Hey, can you tell me what my gifts are? And I'm gonna tell you right now, if you ask me to tell you what your gifts are, my answer will be, I don't know. If you don't know, how do you expect me to know? But the truth is, God knows what he has for you. So the first thing you do when trying to discover or understand, okay, so if I have the Spirit, what gifts, what, a, what abilities, what, what anointings does he have? The first person you need to ask is the Spirit. You ask the Lord. And you ask, would you clarify for me? Would you show me what it is, how you want me to walk, what my giftings are? Some people have multiple giftings. Some have just one, and it's all you need. It's all really the rest of us could take. But you ask him. I am not the one to tell you, but Jesus will tell you. So ask him, talk to him, and don't be afraid that he's not gonna respond because he will. It may take time, it may take seasons, but I'm absolutely convinced he will show you what gifts he has for you, but you need to start with him. Let me ask you a question, and, and getting now to uh, 1 Samuel 12 and where we're gonna be going for tonight. And the question is, and it, it could be somewhat related to this, I guess, a bit, but when you feel hopeless, how do you renew hope? When you're at a place in life where you're, you're just, you're despairing, how do you renew hope? Now, last week we left off with a great victory. So at the end of, of chapter 11, we know that Saul and the Israelites won out over Nahash, his name means serpent, the serpent king, if you will, of the Ammonites. Saul and the Israelites, Shaul, our man Saul, they won this victory. It's the second time in Saul's life that we read the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now, I told you last week there were only two times, and I need to revise that. There are two times the Spirit comes upon Saul mightily while the Spirit is with Saul. But the Spirit is gonna be removed from Saul. And amazingly, after that, the Spirit's gonna come upon him mightily again. And that's bizarre. We're not gonna deal with it tonight. That's around chapter 19, but we'll, we'll get there. But the Spirit now comes upon Saul for the second time. He is filled with a righteous, holy anger. He leads the people in victory over the, the Ammonites. It's, it's an amazing story. And Samuel is watching all of that. The king has arisen in Saul. And he's fought for Israel. And it's, it's a time of great victory. But then Samuel said to the people, this is chapter 11, verse 14, 
Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. See, while everybody else is shouting victory, Samuel is saying, it's time for renewal. We need to renew something that has been lost. And it's been lost even in this whole process of the people crying out for a king. They now have a king. They now have victory over the enemy. And this is the point that Samuel says, we need renewal. Because right now, underneath all of this physical victory and this fleshly king, underneath there is darkness that needs attending to. So all the people, verse 15 of chapter 11, went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. But they go to renew. Let's renew the kingdom. The kingdom's brand new, isn't it? Yeah, but the hope is dashed on the rocks. The hope was in the theocracy. The hope was in God as king. The hope was in Torah. It was in the covenant, the Mosaic covenant given to the people. This was their great hope, but this has been set aside in favor of a, of a king like the nations. And from the perspective of Samuel the prophet, we need to renew the real hope. And truly, that's what chapter 12 is all about. The word renew here is nahades in the Hebrew, and it technically means to restore or to repair or to make better than new. What, what needs repairing? Brand new kingdom, time to renew the kingdom. What needs repairing? The covenant. The covenant has been bent and twisted and, and broken and abused, not on the Lord's side. God has kept every aspect and far more than what he promised in the covenant that he made with Israel, but the Israelites have broken it at every turn. They have ignored God, they have been faithless, they have gone about their lives without any uh, recognition of his lordship. And God's patience has now stretched across four centuries while the people continually violate the law of Moses. While the people continually look the other way, either from ignorance, and sometimes that's just what it is, they're too busy farming, they're too busy trying to make it from one day to the next, so they're kind of ignorant of, of God's truths of his word, they haven't been taught. Or if they've been taught, they, they've been apathetic about it. Some have been living in plain defiance. We've watched this through the entire time of the judges. And I remind you, Samuel is the last of the judges. He's the, the judge who transitions the people from the theocracy to the monarchy. And he's the last one. How do you renew a covenant that has been violated just on one side. It takes an awful lot of mercy. It takes a lot of grace. But I'll tell you one other thing that it takes, and this is requisite in our lives. Renewal requires repentance. Without repentance, there is no renewal. There is no work of the Spirit when the heart remains unrepentant. This is Samuel's goal for Israel. I'm, I'm leading up to all this because as we come into chapter 12, it's mostly Samuel speaking. And his goal for the people of Israel there at Gilgal is not just to establish a king, but is to renew a covenant broken, to renew a people to the Lord because his desire is for us. His desire is for Israel. 
Tonight, listen, his desire is for you. And if you are broken in relationship to God, if you are feeling hopeless related to him, the only way to find the renewal that you desire, that God wants for you, is to repent. And that's not because God's going, well, if you don't repent, I am not here for you anymore. No, it's not about what repentance does to the heart of God. It's about what repentance does to your heart and what it does to mine. And if my heart is unrepentant, my heart will never receive the renewal and the freedom that God has for me. Well, let's watch this. Chapter 12, verse one. Then Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. Now, here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray. Of course, you may remember they called him that back in chapter 10. And behold, my sons are with you, and everybody knows about his sons. These are not good dudes. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. So Samuel's sons have a bad rep. These, these two guys uh, are, are known in Israel. They are a disappointment. They are known by dishonest gain, by justice perverted. They take bribes. They're, they're really in it for the money, trying to make an extra buck. Everyone in Israel knows this, we're told in the previous chapters. Samuel knows it as well. And what's really tragic is that these two boys, well, they could have been the last of the Shofatim. They could have been named among the judges. They were in the lineage. They were there with Samuel. They were his sons. And he tried to raise them up to be judges along with him, but they failed miserably. So the answer is not with them. Uh, the king now is walking before the people, as he says in verse two, but he's not gonna be the answer. Samuel says, and I am old and gray. But the last thing he says is, I walked before you from my youth even to this day. Hey, Samuel's a church kid. He was raised in the house of God. He lived his life in and out of the house of God. He was a minister on circuit in Israel. This guy was raised in church. That's all he's ever known. Simply walking before the Lord and before the people of Israel with great Integrity, 1 Samuel 1, 27, you remember his, his mother Hannah, she said, for this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given my petition which I asked of him, so I have dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped, that is Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. A mother's dedication really can work. 1 Samuel 2, 26 says, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men, same thing spoken of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. 1 Samuel 3.19, thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is a man of God. From the earliest age when his mother brought him up to the tabernacle to be raised, all the way now to the days of the man being old and gray, he has been a church boy and he has walked with the Lord. And my friends, he's no different than you and me. You can do that. People have. People have been raised in church and have just been quietly faithful their entire lives. Oh, I'm not saying perfect. Not a one of us in here who is not deeply flawed in our, in our sin nature. 
But some have been raised up with Jesus. Some have been raised up in the church. Bible says in Proverbs 22, six, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, you could say that's a picture of Samuel right there. Trained up, raised up, and he's lived his life before the Lord and before Israel. Samuel never did depart from this training. He's no Marvel character, don't, don't get me wrong. He's no DC Superman, but... He is in the hall of the faithful in Hebrews 11.32. This guy is an example, a marvelous example of someone who just walks with the Lord. Now listen to me. If you have a powerful testimony of Jesus reaching down and literally plucking you out of a life of sin and sorrow, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Whether that happened yesterday or 20 years ago, if God pulled you out, reached in and saved you. Man, praise the Lord. But also listen to me, if you were raised up a follower from a young age and you don't have one of those stories to tell, you just had faithful parents and you went to church and you're still coming to church and that's all you really have ever known, then thank the Lord. That's a good thing. And sometimes we measure Christian righteousness based on how dark and depraved we were before we found Jesus, right? Like the nine-year-old girl who, who came forward on a Sunday morning and said, for years I've wandered deep in sin. <laughs> you know, Jesus has that way of pulling us out of the deepest, darkest pit. And if he's done that in your life, praise God. But if you've just walked with Jesus, wow, thank you, Lord, for seeing me through. Thank you for being faithful to me and helping me to walk all these years. No one's better than anyone else. But Jesus has a plan in all of our lives and he has worked that out. All have sinned, you know this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, I know I keep saying now listen, but listen. We really have a hard time receiving gifts. We really do. I think one of the biggest struggles we have with the spiritual gifts is in receiving them. It's in acknowledging that maybe this really isn't about me being glorious. Maybe it really is just something the Lord wants me to have, something that he's given to me. And sometimes when people push back against spiritual gifts, it's because there's a, Eve and I were talking about this earlier today, a false sense of humility Oh, no, I don't deserve that. Well, of course you don't deserve that. That's not the point. None of us deserve even to have the Spirit, but we do, and he gifts us for his purposes. And I said this Sunday, and I'll repeat it tonight. It is prideful to reject the gifts of the Spirit. No, no, I don't deserve that. Whoa, so you think that you are better without or on your own? This is what God wants for you and wants for me. And it's never because we have earned or deserved it, because it's because he is so good. So bottom line here with Samuel, you don't need an inspiring story or testimony to be an inspired child of God. Simply need to trust him. And remember that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus here is the whole entire point of the gifts. It's why we have the gifts, to testify Jesus to one another and Jesus to a lost world. So whether you received him later in life or at some point out of the darkness 
or you've walked in church all your life, we all need the anointing of his spirit. And in Jesus, 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing and you all know. John says this so matter-of-factly as we talked about Sunday, if you don't know, you, you need to stop and start talking to the Lord about the anointing because you have it in Jesus. And John among the apostles would be one to say, of course you know. Why wouldn't you know? I mean, that seems so simplistic, but it's so absolutely true. You have an anointing, and you know. Chapter 12 is all about now renewal by repentance. Repenting, returning, this is something that we are so blessed, so different than Saul who's gonna lose the spirit. Once he comes and anoints you, once he is present with you, he will not leave you. You may be unaware of him. You may wander off but he's right there and he doesn't depart. But here we have Saul and this is gonna be messy. But chapter 12, Samuel is now gonna call the people to renewal. Samuel knows that he needs to bring the people to their knees in repentance, not, not by forced submission, but truly to get them to a point where they sincerely recognize how far they have gone from the original calling of the Lord. So to do so, he has to start out as a trustworthy witness. You might jot that down. Three things to note. A trustworthy witness, verse three. Samuel says, here I am, and I bear witness, uh, or bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed, Saul. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, well, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he, that is Samuel, said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, witness. Literally, they just said witness. What is this about? They are attesting to Samuel as having been a trustworthy or faithful witness, and Samuel's not looking for a pat on the back here. Tell you what, when you get to the point like Samuel that you're old and, and gray and you've been walking in the Lord for a long time, you don't need anybody to tell you. You don't need anyone to bear you up or encourage you. This is not Samuel saying, I've been a good guy, haven't I? Please make me feel better about myself. No, he's saying you need to acknowledge and recognize that I have been a faithful witness. Why? Because you gotta be able to hear what I'm gonna say. And if you don't think I've been faithful, why should you listen to anything that I'm gonna teach you or talk to you about right now? We see the same heart in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, when he makes a profound statement. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Really, Paul? You do all things for the sake of the gospel. He does. He did. And he is calling forth the life that he has lived since meeting Jesus. He's calling forth that life in testimony as a witness. He's saying, you all know this about me. And then he says this, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. 
Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. By the way, side note, while while John was leading worship, and, and thank you guys tonight for just wonderful worship, but as I was sitting there thinking about this, and we're singing these songs, and I forget where exactly we were, but it hit me. I can't even fathom what salvation is gonna be like. I mean, I know right now, I I know in my salvation right now that I have a joy that I shouldn't have, that I have a thanksgiving that I shouldn't have, you know, that I have a peace and a hope. That's all there right now. I can't even imagine heaven. And I have studied heaven according to the scriptures. But I cannot even, it just, the thought really struck me. That first moment when we step into his presence eternally, I mean, can, can you even... You can try to imagine, but tonight, there's not a one of us even here who could go, oh yeah, I get it. No, you don't. You don't, and neither do I. And Paul makes this comment, you know, to win a race on earth, to be successful here, the best you get is a perishable wreath, but we're running for something imperishable. This is way beyond our comprehension, but Paul says, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Why, Paul? So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And he's not talking about disqualification of salvation. He's talking about being disqualified as a pastor, as a preacher of the gospel. I have to live this way, Paul says, I have to fight the good fight and I have to control myself and I have to pursue righteousness. Why? Because every word coming out of my mouth depends on it. I do not want to be a disqualified preacher of the gospel. I don't want to walk into town and say, receive Jesus and have people look at me and go, you've got to be kidding. You defrauded someone yesterday. And that is Samuel in this place. He's he's not looking for a pat on the back. He's looking for a confirmation of his credibility as a witness before the people of Israel. That qualification matters because the defendant, this trustworthy witness, now, number two, has to become a convicting prosecutor. A convicting prosecutor. Continuing on in verse six. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hatzor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. This is the entire pattern of the judges, right? And they cried out to the Lord, verse 10, and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtarot. Now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. And then the Lord sent Yerubbaal, that's Gideon, and he sent Badan. Badan, by the way, we, we think is probably Barak, Deborah and Barak. And sent Jephthah and Samuel, myself, 
and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around that you lived in security. From Moses to Samuel, he, he re recalls here that nauseating carousel that's been spinning out of control for 400 years of the people with the Lord and then denying the Lord and ignoring the Lord and being sold into captivity and having their enemies attack and then they cry out to the Lord and God is gracious and merciful and he restores them and they have a time of peace for a while under a certain judge and then it all starts over and round and round they go and we look at that and so easily judge Israel until we look in the mirror <laughs> and we go, wow, it's like the carousel of my life. When we come to that place of hopelessness, how do you renew hope? And that's what Samuel is up to right here in verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. So that's instructive. Samuel is now a prophet in terms of forth-telling He's in the forth-telling exhortation mode, okay? He's trying to exhort the people to understand what's going on because as I keep saying, there is no renewal without repentance. But what we discover happened under the attack of Nahash that we read about in the last chapter last week, Nahash and the Ammonites, what we realize is this was not just a singular attack, but the people of Israel were under the oppression of the Ammonites just like they have been under oppression so many times before, round and round we go, this is just the latest edition of oppression. But this time, rather than crying out to the Lord, they cry out to the prophet, give us a king. Because clearly the Lord just doesn't work. We've tried this over and, have you ever felt that way in your life? I've cried to the Lord, and I found myself right back in the place of hopelessness again, do you really think that's the Lord's fault? And yet, the people are to the point where they're done with Yahweh. We've tried this over and over. Now give us a king like the nations. At least we'll have someone to stand up for us who has flesh and blood. Someone who we can look at and follow. Give us a king. Well, this is under the, the despair and the duress of the Ammonites. Whereas in previous distress, they sought the Lord, but now they want a king they can see. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 30 says, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, Moses prophesied, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. That's a prophecy yet fulfilled for Israel, yet to be fulfilled. This is why I've preached before and I stand on this, that in the latter days, Israel will return to the Lord. But at this point in their storied history, they're turning from the Lord into a king like the nations. Now, distress can work wonders. Duress and difficulty in our lives can be an awesome thing provided that it brings about repentance leading to renewal. But if it doesn't bring repentance, sometimes distress just drives us further into ourselves or pushes us further into wanting to be like the world just so that we can ease up a bit. Maybe if we're like them, they'll leave us alone, which is why you see churches falling to culture. It's easier that way, isn't it? It's just easier. Why, if we just didn't have to fight these battles, let's just fly the enemy's flag and we'll be good. 
And what we're doing as a church, and I'm talking very generally here, is coming under greater and greater and greater oppression that we can't even see. But standing up and, and fighting against these things, repenting, returning to the Lord, even when it's difficult, boy, that repentance brings about renewal. Instead, Proverbs 26, 11 calls it, this is a verse you all ought to, ought to memorize and repeat on a constant basis, a dog, like a dog that returns to its vomit, is a fool who returns to his folly. You've probably all seen it. It's about the grossest thing, one of the two grossest things that a dog will do. And you go, that is just, don't you lick me with that mouth? It's disgusting. But without a change of heart, vomit looks mighty appealing. Sounds gross, but that is exactly what it looks like in the eyes of God. When we come against difficulty and rather than heart change and repentance, we just go right back in for more of the disgusting filth that, that, that we're licking up. Without heart change, we just, we can't receive the compassion of God. And so we kick back against him. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.15, speaking of Israel, he says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over, not their face, but their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, is what? Hmm? Say it loudly. Freedom. Liberty. Where the spirit of the Lord is liberty. We, we have an entire culture, a country based on freedom and liberty, right and wrong. We are not a free country, we are a permitted country. <laughs> but liberty, this is what God provides. And Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit, there's the gift. The gift of the Spirit, transforming us, changing us, and setting us free. And that's what God wants for us. That's what he wants for Israel. This is Samuel's broken heart for Israel. Freedom and liberty. But the unrepentant heart stays blind. Can't receive compassion. Can't even conceive that God is being compassionate. So I say again what I said earlier, repentance is not about appeasing God. Repentance is about being set free. Your heart needs it. My heart needs it. Acts 3.18, Peter said, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so Samuel, now the witness turned prosecutor, reminding them of the days of the judges, now turns to number three. He turns to the judge, who is not Samuel, but the Lord, and the divine sentence of the Lord, verse 13. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you, as he gestures, perhaps, to Saul. If you will fear the Lord... 
and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now, verse 16, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. And hold it, we're not gonna see what he's gonna do just yet. But the choice is so simple. It's as black and white as it was from the very first day Moses spoke the words, the choice is repent or rebel, your call. Repent or rebel. Follow or defy. Stand or fall. This short history of Israel teaches us something. <laughs> the latest crisis, see if this is you, the latest crisis always seems to be the worst one. You've been in that place where you say, man, I, this is the last straw. I just can't do this anymore. I, I love when people say that because I'm like, well, what are you gonna do? I can't take this anymore. Well, okay, what if it continues tomorrow? How are you gonna renew hope when you're feeling hopeless? People will get to the point where they wonder if God's even gonna come through at all this time or if perhaps I'm just on my own. That's where Israel is at with this king situation. We've been to God over and over. He's come through, but then we're right back in it. And now we're in it again. And this is worse than ever before. And you know, truly, it probably isn't. In fact, in most of our lives, we've probably been through something worse than what we're going through right now, bad though it may seem, but when you're in the middle of it, it always seems to be the worst thing. So I would encourage you to plop down next to Jeremiah on the Mount of Olives and look at Jerusalem burning and listen to the man say, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah wrote that in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, in the midst of the destruction of his beloved Jerusalem. As the temple crumbled to the ground, as all hope was 100% absolutely and completely lost for the people with absolute finality, he says the Lord's grace never ends. So whatever situation we're in, no matter how difficult it may seem at the time, Jesus always comes through. You want proof of that? You're here tonight. You're living, you're breathing, you're listening to the word of the Lord, you sang songs of worship. No matter what's happened in your life, you're still here and he is still working in you and faithful is he who calls you, he will bring it to pass. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24 or 2 Thessalonians 3, verse three, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Well, but I'm not sure, I just repent. Turn to the Lord. But I've turned to him so many times, do it again. That times of refreshing may come. Jesus always comes through. We're the ones who falter. 2 Timothy 2, 13, if we are faithless, and I would add, and we are. He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Faithfulness is not what he does. Faithfulness is who he is. And that we're called to trust. 
But, but Samuel says, as he's looking out over the people, and he may be getting some looks kind of like I'm getting right now, like, I want to believe this. I'd like to believe this. I'm really not sure. Is this true? And Samuel says, all right, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Why? Because it's wheat harvest, and it does not rain at the wheat harvest. The rain stops. This is not like Washington State, where it drizzles all year long off and on. This is Israel, and the rains come, the, the early rains and the latter rains, but in between, there ain't no rain. They are in the time of the dry season, the wheat harvest. There is no reason that it should be raining and thundering at all, and it's a massive thunderstorm. So the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Verse 19, then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God. Note that, not the Lord our God. The repentance is half-hearted here. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And so Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil. <laughs> Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Man, do we do that? Something else, I mean, Jake said earlier today, and really asking the question, do I serve the Lord with all my heart and all my soul and all my might? What does that mean? That means every moment of the day. How many of us can say that? That we roll out with Jesus on our lips and we move through the day with him. And we're, we're checking decisions and, and thoughts against his word and we're, we're asking him for direction and we're following after him and where we see a clear path that he's laid for us, we take it. And then at the end of the day, we roll back in with the name of Jesus on our lips. I mean, that love the Lord, serve the Lord with your, all your heart. You must not turn aside, verse 21, for then you would go over after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they're futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. The only reason why you can even repent right now is because the Lord has not abandoned you. He's saying to Israel, he's still here. Yeah, you've done all this great evil. Yes, you've rebelled against the Lord over and over and over. He's still here. This is something that Christians sometimes struggle with too. How could God possibly forgive me of this? Because he's faithful, even when we are faithless. He's still here. He says, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I love Samuel. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Now Sunday, I'm gonna come back to this section and this great thunderous rain. In fact, I, I think I'm gonna call it something like praying up a storm. <laughs> How do you pray up a storm? 
But note that even in moving from the guardian judges now to the anointed kings, what Samuel is saying is God must remain central. Let me put it to you this way. It doesn't matter what your mode of governance is if God is central. Now, I'm a capitalist. I'll confess it. But Samuel would say to you and to me, in capitalist America, in our, oh, in our constitutional republic, he would say to us, God must be central. What if we lived in communist China? Samuel in communist China would not say the overthrow of the, uh, of the communist government is your key. He would say God is central, which is why today in China, the Chinese house church movement is exploded. It's, it's massive. The number of Christians living in China with the centrality of God under a communist regime. The goal is not getting the government to straighten up. It's fear the Lord, not the king. Serve him in truth. The monarchy itself has to be secondary and do it with all your heart. So I'll put it to you this way. My allegiance may be to king and country, to flag, but my heart must first be to the Lord. God must be central. So we can look back over all of history and look at every government that's ever functioned in the world. And a monarchy may be well-founded, but without Jesus, it's gonna fail. Capitalism may be effective in a season, but without the Lord, greed overtakes the whole thing. It will fall. And again, even in our constitutional republic, no matter how well the constitution was written, it will crumble from within where God is not central. So our hope is not in the constitution. Our hope is in the Lord, and if our country would hope in the Lord, then our constitution would work. And even the founders knew this. I mean, I could go over quote after quote after quote. I'm not gonna take the time to do it right now. Look them up. How many of the founders said, if you take the Bible out of the picture, the Constitution will fail? Because that's the whole basis of it. Well, Samuel is saying, okay, we've moved from theocracy to monarchy. God is still the central, central force in the whole thing. You still have to keep your focus on Yahweh. And if you remove that from him, no king's gonna do you any good. And we'll see the mess that Israel becomes because of the kings. Chapter 13, verse one, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. And if you're reading a different translation than what I just read, you're going, wait, that's not what mine says. Some of your translations say Saul reigned a year and, uh, and then two years over Israel. Some of your translations say other things like he was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years. And it's all, it starts to get very muddled and confusing. The wording is difficult here in verse one of chapter 13. And I think I told you when we opened up Samuel, in the Hebrew, a lot of the wording in Samuel is difficult. We really need to trust the context of what's being said and look at other uh, passages and other books to really understand Samuel as we do. Uh, and, and the Lord is faithful and Samuel is, is a solid book, but the text is tough. The way this text literally reads in the Hebrew, verse one, is Saul was years old when he began to reign. It doesn't say one. It doesn't say 30. It says he was years old when he began to reign. What does that mean? And some commentators actually speculate that maybe uh, Samuel was writing this about Saul, and, and when he was writing this, he left out how old he was when he started to reign because he wasn't sure and wanted to go find out, and then he forgot to fill it back in later. 
okay? Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned, and then there's, and he reigned two years over Israel. Well, he didn't reign two years over Israel. He reigned a lot longer than that over Israel. So some wonder if the numerals were forgotten or lost. Something else you have to recognize is right in verse two, uh, or, or yeah, verse two, we meet Jonathan, who's now fighting alongside his dad. Jonathan has to be at least 20 years old. So if, as some of our Bibles say, he was 30 when he began to reign, and Jonathan's there with him, that means he was 10 when he gave birth to Jonathan. So that can't work. And then you piece in all of the events that take place in chapters 13 and 14 describe a history that's a lot longer than just two years' worth of rule. So there are a lot of difficulties here in understanding. If we go to the New Testament, we can get a little bit of help because the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, verse 21, tells us specifically, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So Saul reigned for 40 years over Israel. That much we can be certain of. Josephus, uh, that Jewish historian of the first century, uh, outside of the Bible, Josephus confirmed that as well, that Saul's reign was 40 years. So the people of, under, of Israel understood that the question, I guess, in this first verse is, what do we do with it? It's not contradictory, my friends. It's just unclear. And it's not the point. In fact, I would suggest to you that it's irrelevant at this point. But I think the best suggestion I can give you with verse one is this. Saul was years old, would indicate he was well of age and, and physical uh, strength when he began to reign. He was mature, you might say, and then the phrase, he reigned two years over Israel, may indicate from the Lord's perspective the length of his rule before God said, that's it. He will not be my king. Now, he would continue to reign 38 years beyond that because God is God of grace and patience and because another king needed to be raised up at the right time. But I think after two years was when the Lord specifically said, this isn't gonna work. In fact, we're gonna find out later on that the Lord is going to be sorry that he ever made Saul king. The word which literally translates the Lord repented of making Saul king. What? The Lord? I, I didn't know that the Lord repented. I thought his judgments were righteous and true. They are. Hold that thought. That's for chapter 15. But we will talk about that when we get there. So it, it, this is all very interesting, but I, I, I think that that's where we're at, that it didn't take long before the Lord said, he is a king like the nations, and this is not going to work. But as usual, God is very patient. Well, verse two. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gabeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people each to his tent. Verse three, Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, which is also Gibeah, same place. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines and the people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. What a contrast. Samuel stands up in chapter 12 and says, I was a faithful witness. 
Does anyone have anything to bring? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Does anyone have anything to bring against me as, as a prophet, as a judge, that I defrauded you or hurt you or ripped you off in any way? No, no, the people say. We witness to that. Okay, good, then listen to what I have to say. So he confirms that he had the right to speak. It's not about pride. It actually is very humbly saying, you need to understand that I'm just speaking truth to you. Now, by contrast, we get Saul. What happens as soon as we see Saul here, Jonathan, Jonathan goes and ignites the fight. Jonathan takes on this garrison of the Philistines and Saul toots his own horn. Look at what I've done, look at what I've done, do 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 Call all the people to me. So the press release is that Saul did it, but we know Saul didn't. It was Jonathan who did this. Now, you might wanna note this because it's pertinent to the next chapter, which we won't get to tonight, that the garrison of the Philistines is probably not a, a, a garrison at this point, not yet. What we're probably looking at, because the same word is used of a prefect or a governor. So what probably is happening right here at the beginning of chapter 13 is Jonathan takes out the governor of this Philistine stronghold. In other words, this is a secret attack, assassination of the Philistine governor. So he goes up against that. He's gonna go up against the entire garrison in the next chapter, in which case he's gonna take out 20 men in a, in a pretty awesome brazen fight. But this time, it's not the entire garrison. It's likely just the leader of that garrison. But by taking out the leader, what Jonathan does is he stirs up the Philistines against Israel. And the point is this. Jonathan's a man of faith. You're gonna see this in his life. You're gonna see an amazing man in Jonathan, a trustworthy friend, the kind of friend anyone would want. And Jonathan is a man of faith. Where that faith came from, doubtfully Saul, but he had faith nonetheless, and he trusted the Lord. And when he takes out this leader of the Philistine garrison, he's doing it because Jonathan is taking charge while Saul is sitting down. Jonathan takes charge, Saul takes credit. Davis, in his commentary, says, God's purposes are not frustrated when his more authorized servants prove reluctant. And what we see happening here in this chapter is Saul is just sitting under a pomegranate tree. He's not doing anything. He's got his warriors around him. So Jonathan has some as well, but he's not fighting. He's not pushing. He's just sitting there. Jonathan finally says, we gotta do something here. This is not acceptable. This is the land God gave us, and he starts to go up against the Philistines. Davis says, perhaps there would have been no need for George Whitfield's wild practice of preaching in the fields had the Anglicans been preaching the same gospel in their churches. Sometimes God has to use someone who's simply willing, whether they're a leader or not. And so this is exactly what we see happening. Verse five, now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance, they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Bet-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and pits. Stop right there. How is this different than their entire carousel of nausea with the judges? How much difference has the king made? None. It's still a matter of are you gonna call on the Lord or not? 
Also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now, he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Remember what we said on Sunday? No king was ever to be a priest. That was the dividing line, separation of church and state. You are not to do this. Saul takes on himself the role of Samuel, who is prophet and priest. Saul does what he is not supposed to do. As soon as, note this, verse 10, as soon as he finished the offering, or offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. <laughs> but Samuel said, what have you done? No doubt, approaching Gilgal, Samuel saw the smoke of the offering and smelled the burning of the flesh and knew what have you done? Saul said, because I saw the people were scattered from me and you did not come within the appointed days and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You've got to be kidding. What a slew of excuses. Maybe they sound familiar. First, Saul blames the people. They were scattering. I had to do something, right? And then he shifts the blame to the prophet, to Samuel. You didn't come. And then, well, by the way, apparently Samuel did come within the appointed time. Remember, Samuel said, wait seven days and I'll come. Saul offers up the offering and when he finishes, clearly on the seventh day, he's waited seven days and, and Samuel hasn't come, so he offers the offering. It's the seventh day, and verse 10 tells us, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I suggest to you that was on the seventh day, but it just wasn't soon enough on the seventh day for Saul. You know, Saul was probably looking in the morning going, I can't wait a minute longer. It's been seven whole days. No, it hasn't. He said he'd be here. You know, give him a little more time. That's, boy, that is so me. I've been waiting, Lord. I've been waiting. Just didn't wait quite long enough. Same thing we talked about with the king of Israel. David was the one in line. Remember, remember this? After 10 generations, there's a curse on the line of Judah, a 10-generation curse, because Judah and Tamar had an illegitimate son, so no one in 10 generations could then sit on the throne, could be in the presence of the Lord. David was the first who could if the people had only waited one more generation, they would have had God's choice for a king, but they just couldn't wait. And that's Saul playing out the same thing. Well, so he blames the people, he blames the prophet, and then he blames the enemy. Hey, the Philistines were assembling. Spiritual warfare, man. Satan was attacking, what was I supposed to do? Well, I'll tell you what, if Satan's attacking, you don't do the wrong thing. That's not gonna help. Finally, Saul blames coercion. I really didn't want to do this, but what choice did I have? You had the choice, Saul, not to violate your position. 
Now, if you've ever tried any of the same stale old excuses of impatience, let me remind you of the word of the Lord that though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and never faint. Who? Those who wait on the Lord. And don't go charging ahead because God's just not on my timetable. Well, brother, sister, your timetable is not the Lord's. Neither is mine. Hebrews 10.37 says, in yet a very little while, he who is coming will come. Let me ask you, has Jesus come soon enough for you? He hadn't come soon enough for me. About 10 years ago, it would have been fantastic. But who has he saved in the last 10 years? You know, what, what has he accomplished that there's no way we could have accomplished? What if he had come 10 years ago? Who of us would have been lost? His timing's perfect. Mine is not so much. He says, my righteous one, Hebrews 10, 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. What is faith? Trust me. Trust me, says the Lord. And God says, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Saul is shrinking here. Saul is trying to hold it together here. He is being faithless. Now, some might say, okay, but what's the big deal? So he made a little burnt offering. Others offered up burnt offerings. No, this wasn't an offering. It was the burnt offering. This is the Olah. This is the first offering listed in Leviticus. This is an offering to be given up by the holy priest, anointed priest, to a holy God, the burnt offering. And so Saul is in direct violation, and he knew, he knew better, which is why he's offering up excuses, which, by the way, parents, that's the first way you know your kid is in trouble, because they start to make excuses. You know, okay, clearly you're in the wrong, or you wouldn't be having to defend yourself right now. Worse, this was just an act of defiance. I'm gonna do this. And, and it's, you know what, what I've heard said about Saul, and I think it must be absolutely true, and that is that Saul had no confidence. Had no confidence in himself, which is why at our last study, we saw him hiding behind the baggage, right? They wanna make him king. Where's, where's this, you know, guy taller than anyone in Israel, best looking guy around? He's hiding. Why? He has no confidence, he has zero self-confidence. That would be okay, but he has no God confidence. God is not central in this man's life. Otherwise, he would be trusting there and he would have confidence to boot, but he, he doesn't. Verse 13 says, Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now... Here we are two years in. Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Note this, the Lord has already done this in his own heart, in his own mind, and it would be another 38 years before David would ascend to the throne. God's plans are often unseen, but they're at work. And there is always reason to hope because the plans of the, of the Lord never fail. But here in verse 14, this is where Saul technically lost the kingdom. Even as a boy who at this point is a man or would be a man after God's own heart is 
somewhere in the hills of Bethlehem shepherding sheep. I'm gonna say something to you and you need to hear me on this. Impatience can lose you the kingdom. Impatience can lose you the kingdom. Wait, Rick, I've always believed once saved, always saved. You're saying I can lose my salvation? I didn't say that, but you could lose the kingdom. See, right now, we are all being positioned and trained and prepared to rule and reign with Jesus in his kingdom, but some are gonna falter from that. And I do think Rick's opinion, just my opinion, this is not scripture, but I do think there are those who show up at church who call themselves Christians, who, who say they follow the Lord, but the Lord would say, I, I didn't know you. I think there are going to be many who will miss the rapture of the church and who will not rule and reign. They may even go into the kingdom, but they will not rule and reign. You can lose the kingdom by simply being impatient, by not trusting in the Lord. Jesus said his words now, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. What does that mean? I suggest it means what he says. Christianity is not winning the immediate skirmishes. It is faithfulness over the long haul. It's just trusting the Lord no matter what it looks like. No matter the difficulties that we might face, it's hope for the long haul, but that hope needs to be renewed from time to time. And again, the only way to renew the hope is to repent. James chapter one, verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is joy through the trials, joy through the difficulties, if indeed we will simply trust the Lord. 1 Peter 2.20, what credit is there when you sin and you're harshly treated if you endure it with patience? Hey, you brought it on yourself, we could say. But Peter says, when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What if Saul had just waited? Well, had I waited, the Philistines might have attacked. Yeah, they might have. They might have. Had I waited, Samuel may never have come. Yeah, maybe not. Had I waited, all the people would have scattered. Yeah, possibly. But it's the right thing. And in doing the right thing, Saul would have seen the hand of the Lord move at exactly the right time. Instead, his impatience lost him the kingdom. Did Samuel say he would come to Saul at Gilgal in seven days? Yes. Did Samuel show up in seven days? Yes. Third question, did Jesus promise he would come? Okay, just trust that. For he himself has said, Hebrews 13, five, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So Saul, don't panic. If you're surrounded, if you're hard pressed, if your life is in the pit or you're in the caves or thickets or cliffs or cellars, <laughs> you're hiding out because it all looks bad. Remember this simple truth. Jesus said, I'm coming. I am coming. All we gotta do is believe him. He is coming and he is coming quickly. He who testifies to these things says, Jesus' words, yes, I am coming quickly. 
Revelation 22, 20. Amen, come Lord Jesus, John replies. I'm coming quickly. Well, not quick enough for me. Yeah, well, when it's all said and done and we're with Jesus, we will look back and go, wow, that was fast. <laughs> you really did come quickly. Verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So what you see there, in, in, implicit in the text, is Samuel departs, I think, brokenhearted, and Saul just goes about business. He's clueless. He's lost the kingdom, doesn't even know it. Isn't even thinking about that. Even though Samuel says, God's gonna give it to another. Yeah, 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 I gotta number the people. Verse 16, now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with him were staying in Gabah of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shul, another company toward Bet Horon, and another company toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. You know, it's fascinating about that. Those two verses might not mean a lot to you, but to archeologists and students of history, we know exactly where this is. So you can, in Israel today, you can see what these exact locations, one of the things that makes it so fascinating to be there is you can go, oh, that's, that, that's right here. And you can see the exact places. So these places are known even to this day. But verse 19, this is interesting, says, now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes, and to fix the hoes. So it came about on the day of battle that neither, neither sword nor spear was found in any of the people or the, in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. And chapter 14 is another battle that we're gonna save for next week. But we're gonna end right here. And it's interesting to me, Israel severely, underarmed against the ironclad power of the Philistines. <laughs> this is so Israel's history. Read the story, O Jerusalem, and, and, and check out the story of Israel fighting for their independence and how massively outgunned they were against the five Arab nations that all attacked at the same time. There is no way on earth that they should have won their independence in 1948, but God, his hand was in it. And there's story after story in 1948, in 1967, in 1972, in 1983, over and over these wars that should have been massively lost. And somehow, somehow, even in modern times, God's hand has been there for his people. And he's seen them through. So that's the picture really going into chapter 14 is this is an outgunned, outmanned people and they're even right now under the oppression of the Philistines because they have to go down to pay the Philistine blacksmiths just to get a good ax or mattox. They wanted their hoe fixed, they gotta go to a Philistine. This, this, this was a, an absolute oppression. And by the way, no Philistine smithy was about to provide weapons to the Israelites. So nobody had them except for Saul and Jonathan. That was strategic on the part of the Philistines, keep them without weapons. It is also strategic on the part of Satan. Keep them without weapons. 
Keep the people unarmed. Keep the sword out of the hands of God's people. In fact, what Satan has tried to do over time, you've seen this in our history, deny deny your average person even access to a sword, or at least get them used to their leaders being the only ones who actually have swords. Make them rely on someone else and not on themselves. And the Bible says, you know these well, Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You do that. You take that. The word of, the God, of God, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now, I know I'm preaching to the army tonight. I get it. You're here. You're in the word right now. But listen, it is not the pastor's job to be diligent. It is the fellowship's job. It is our job, each and every one of us. If we're gonna fight this good fight, we need to hold the sword. And the enemy wants to deny that. The enemy wants to say things to you like, well, you can't possibly really understand this. You need someone else who can do it for you. So I would love to preach myself out of a job. My wife and kids, maybe not so much, but I, I'm willing. I would, and and it, it thrills me to no end when, when I hear the responses and I get the emails and I get the questions, you know? I love it because it tells me you're in the word. You need to be in the word. You need to be diligent. We are all called to accurately handle this sword. For though we walk in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10 verse three, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't fight back the way people fight back in this world, no. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. By the way, that Philistine garrison that, that, that Jonathan's gonna take out in the next chapter, archeologically, we know right where it was. There is evidence of a Philistine stronghold in that location of Geba. Jonathan's gonna take it out. He's gonna fight back with the strength of the Lord, but my friends, we have weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh. So let's be really clear. They are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, even as the Philistine fortress is gonna be destroyed. So we can fight back and destroy spiritual fortresses with the weapons of our warfare. Now, I've read that verse, I don't know, five, 600 times. I love the verse. It sounds really cool. It should be in a Lord of the Rings novel. And yet, listen to me, we know what this is. We know what the weapons of our warfare are. It's very simple. It's two pieces. It's what Peter describes in Acts chapter six, verse four, when he says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And these two things are the weapons of our warfare. And we have to, even as we are trying to understand and accept that we all have an anointing and we all know, guess what? We all have the word and we all have prayer and they are powerful to fight the spiritual battle that we're called on to fight. This is not poetry, this is warfare. And we are called to be people who know this word and can use it as we fight. And people who know how to pray up a storm. And if you're not sure how to pray up a storm, we'll come back Sunday because we're gonna talk about that. 
I wanna punch into chapter 14, just three verses and end right here. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which was in Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600 men, and Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. This is a really interesting um, suggestion of what's happening here. The lineage of Ahijah in verse three is given. Son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother. Remember Ichabod? What does his name mean? Anybody know? Glory gone. The glory's departed. Remember the ark had been taken and Hophni and Phinehas had both been killed and Ellie falls over off of his chair and breaks his neck and dies and the wife of Phinehas in her, on her uh, giving birth and dying says his name is Ichabod. Glory gone. Hope gone. Hope destroyed. Hopelessness, that's all we've got now. And this is Ahijah, son of Ahitub, who's the brother of Ichabod. So he's in the lineage of Eli. Note that because 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 14 says, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That is the lineage of Eli is out. But here is Ahijah, the high priest in the lineage of Eli serving alongside Saul. What you have here as chapter 14 begins is a high priestly line rejected. He's wearing an ephod, but it's pretty pathetic because he can't figure out how to use it. You know, the ephod that, that would have the urim and the tumim, which are how they somehow, and we don't understand this fully, how they heard from the Lord, how they would make requests of the Lord and pray to the Lord and, and get response. And he's wearing the ephod, but we're gonna find out down in verse 38, verse 37, that they're crying out to the Lord, but he did not answer him on that day. They can't get an answer. They don't know what's going on. He's wearing this ephod, but there's no insight and there's no response from the Lord, no answer from God. Ahijah's high priestly line is rejected. Saul's dynasty, as we've already seen now, is rejected. And he's sitting there passively under the pomegranate tree in Migron. And Migron means precipice. Israel's leadership for their desire to have leadership like the nations was on the precipice. They are pathetically in the blind, passively on the precipice as Saul is just sitting there doing nothing. They are on the verge of complete and utter failure. How do you renew hope? Well, here's the good news. Jonathan, Jonathan's out there getting ready to stir up the fight. One man is trusting God, and it makes a difference. At the same time, while all of this is going on, God's got his eye on David. King David's coming. So in the midst of dull despair and defeatism, there's hope in the Lord. It may just be with one or two, but there is hope in the Lord as there always is. I conclude with this, Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Underscore that, it's grace in which we stand, not ability. 
grace. And then he says this, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only in this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Brothers and sisters, renew hope in repentance. Turn to God. Well, I haven't, I haven't really sinned. How can I repent? Just turn to God. It's repentance. Anytime we make that turn, we're trusting him and the kingdom is coming and bringing it is the king. Amen? Father, thank you for your word to us tonight and I pray for encouragement. And most of all, Lord, would you continue just to call us to repentance day in and day out, a turning away from sin, a turning away from self and self-confidence and a turning to the centrality of Jesus in all things. Father, I ask you to help us learn what it means to love you with all our hearts and with all our minds and with all our strength. Until that final day, and we know it's coming, Lord, until that day, help us to walk in our anointing. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.